um, you know, we've been we've been kind of on a on a series, a roll of uh, weeks of talking about how it is that we actually do this thing. How do we how do we live this life that we're talking about, this way of Jesus that is also a contemplative way, and, and that's the the key word for us. And uh, contemplation is is getting quiet, is getting silent. It's, it's a pulling back. It's a stripping down. It's a letting go of the egoic mind, that mind that's always talking to you, that just grabs everything, you know, sucks all the oxygen out of the room, steals every scene. Use whatever metaphor you want to use, but it's that part of us that is always presently distracting us from what actually is. How do we do that? How do we? And how do we? Just let go. So much of this has to do with healing. We have to start to heal a lot of the past wounds, the past hurts, those things that actually built that egoic mind in the way that it has taken shape in your own head, life, and heal that enough so that we can let it down. You know, if the, if the hurts aren't healed, if the trauma is still there emotionally down deep, then of course you're still going to need all of those programs, all those defense mechanisms, all of that stuff to feel like you can survive and, and make it from moment to moment. And so healing becomes a really important part. And so I want to talk about that a bit today. But I wanted to start here. I want you to think about all the things that we fight about as Christians Christian to Christian, between Christians, among Christians, and especially Christians versus people, quote-unquote, outside the faith. What is it that we fight about? And what's all that about? What are all those fights about? I suppose, you know, we would, the knee-jerk reaction is to say they're about truth, right? You know, what's true and what's not? I always like what Pilate said when Jesus said he was a witness to the truth. You remember? Quid est veritas in Latin. What is truth? (laughs) Whose truth are you talking about here? Mine, yours, somebody else's? Truth is so unchangeable, it seems like, from person to person. Everybody who is fighting, everybody who is in these debates, in these arguments, in these ostracisms, and all the things that we do to each other, believes they have the truth. Exclusive to everybody else, right? That's why they're fighting. Because they all feel they have this truth. And that can play out in ethics, it can play out in morality, law, customs, and style of worship. Churches have split over whether you're going to have an electric guitar on stage or not. I mean, these are the kinds of things that Christians fight about. And especially about doctrine, of course about doctrine, about the great social issues that we're facing as a society. How do we know what the truth is? How do we know what's right and wrong? How do we judge? Even though we're not supposed to do that, how do we? Decide what is right, what is wrong, what is true, what to fight about. Well, as people of the book, and if you haven't heard that phrase before, that's what Islam calls Jews and Christians, people of the book. Because we revere the book. The book is our foundation. The book is our basis. We refer to the book. It orders our lives. So as people of the book, Scripture, the book, is what gives us this foundation, this sense. Right? Isn't it so? I mean, what Scripture does is actually order our lives. What we think, the concepts we hold dear, and also the way that we go about dealing with life is all going to be ordered around what we believe about Scripture. So here's the thing to think about. No matter what the fight is about, 
It's about Scripture, if you are people of the book. When it comes right down to it, at the bottom of the dog pile, what we are fighting about is our interpretation, our understanding of Scripture. And it differs from person to person, from denomination to denomination, as we so well know. What we're fighting about is Scripture at the bottom of it all. So you would think that if Scripture is this important, if we're people of the book, and we're going to order our lives around what this book says, that we should make real darn sure that we know what the book is saying, right? But that's a lot easier said than done. It is difficult to know what the book says 2,000 years later. It was difficult to know what the book said 150 to 200 years later when the Western and the Eastern groups of followers of Jesus started to split. And so this is something that is, we keep coming back to this theme over and over and over again. The Bible is a spiritual book. Would you all agree with that? Primarily, it's a spiritual book. Primarily, what the Bible is trying to get across to us are spiritual truths. Trying to get across to us something that is unseen, yet is so vitally important, so foundational, that our lives are going to reflect that. This is what the Bible is trying to get across. First and foremost, it's conveying spiritual truths. And yet, think about where our accuracy, think about where our focus is placed. Especially in relation to all these fights that we were talking about that you know are going on. The focus is on the accuracy of physical issues. Even though we know the Bible is a spiritual book, we're focused on physical issues. What are the fights about? Creation. Is it six days? Is it a billion years? Somewhere in between, someplace. We fight about creation. We fight about church practice and doctrine. We fight about the flood, Noah's flood. Did it happen? Didn't it happen? How did it happen? How did, you know, Adam and Eve as two people do this? And then how did Noah with his family do that? And we talk about numbers and we fight about those and the generations. How do they work? We, we talk about archaeology and we look at archaeology in relation to the Bible. We look at dates. We're looking at all of these physical attributes of the scripture and we're trying to prove their accuracy we're focused on the physical even though we know that the bible is a spiritual book the bible is focusing on these spiritual truths the bible is trying to build an awareness in us of the unseen significance of everything around us and every moment that we experience The Bible is trying to present views of God that can't be put into words. How could those views of God be put into words? But the Bible uses and approaches God through story, approaches God through metaphor, through figures of speech, through simile and analogy, and anything and everything else that is available to the spoken or written word to try to convey these spiritual truths that really can't be put into words. Do you remember Paul's vision? Take a look at 2 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 2, because this is exactly what I'm trying to express to you right now. This is Paul speaking to the Corinthians, and he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Okay, here's Paul talking about himself in the third person. 
Now, he's trying to do it out of modesty. He's trying to do it you know, in a self-effacing way. And that was a typical practice in, for ancient writers to do that. But he's talking about himself. In the next section, passage right after that, he talks about since he was translated up to the third heaven, you know, he didn't want to get conceited, and God didn't want him to get conceited and big-headed about it. So he gave him a thorn in his flesh to keep his feet on the ground and keep his head at the proper size. And so here's Paul trying to do this, talking about in the third person. I know a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Now, what is this third heaven? Ever heard of the third heaven before? See, what the Jews, their cosmology, what they believed was that there were, the first, there were three heavens. The first heaven was the realm of the clouds and the realm of the wind. It was the visible skies that you could see. Above that was the second heaven, or Shemaiah. That was the realm of the stars and the sun and the moon and the wandering stars that we call planets. Did you know that the word planet means wanderer in Greek? Planetes means wanderer. You get that for free. So... But as they were looking at the sky, the stars were fixed, except these little dots were moving all over the place. They're wandering. And so they, they knew there was something different about those. That was the second heaven, the realm of the celestial bodies. But there was a third heaven above that that was unseen, and that was the realm of God. That was where God's throne was. That's where God and all the, the beings around God were there. So he is translated, and he doesn't know if this was in the body or just in the spirit. God only knows, but he was translated up to this third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. And we got paradise. What are we supposed to do with that? Well, paradise comes from a word that means garden. The, the Jews believed in the Gan Eden in the Olam Haba. Olam Haba was the world to come. Gan Eden was, was the Garden of Eden, that there was a paradise. There was a garden. There was a place where we would return to, as Adam and Eve had come forth from, where we would interface and connect and live with God in this, in this place of, of, of happiness and connection. Now, it sounds like it's two separate things. Yeah, most scholars think it's probably the same thing that he's referring to. But he was in this place, in this third heaven, where there was God, and there was everyone who was joining God. He was in this place. And he hears inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Here's the interesting thing. If you take that word that is translated as inexpressible here, King James translates it as unspeakable. Both those, uh, that word can mean both cannot be expressed or ought not be expressed. All right, And then when you look at which a man is not permitted to speak, that word there, exon in Greek, can both mean not permitted or not lawful, as King James translates it, but it can also mean not possible. So if you put those two together and you translate this, Paul had heard words that cannot be spoken and which a man, for a man, is not possible to express or to convey. Now, most of the translations have opted for a more legal interpretation that he was not permitted to, that it was not lawful for him to. But really, it's just as legitimate to say it was not possible for him to speak these things because these words cannot be expressed. These visions that he was having cannot be expressed. The scripture is pointing to relationships. The scripture is pointing to states of being. 
that we can't comprehend. They don't fit in our heads. We cannot understand them rationally and then express them logically. But we can live them. We can experience them. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Now, there's another major area of controversy. And I want to take a little more time here because we started with the idea of healing. I want to see if by looking at Scripture in this little bit different way, on another level or at multiple levels at the same time, we can see where Jesus is trying to point us. We can see where he's pointing us without words to this experience, this incomprehensible but livable experience of God's presence. Where is he, where is he, trying, to, where is he trying to take us? Does Jesus ever actually describe the crux of his ministry the actual central point of his ministry, the, the, the main mission and vision, if you will, if you want to put it into business terms. Does he do that? Well, yes, he does. It's in a retort to John the Baptist. And I wanted to take you in, and take a look at uh, Matthew 11, uh, starting at verse 2. And let's see what's going on here. John is in prison. John had called out the king for his dealings with women, and he gets uh, sent to prison uh, for his trouble. And he's hearing about Jesus' ministry and hearing what he's doing, but it's not coming out the way John thinks. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one that we are expecting? Are you the expected one, or should we start looking for someone else? Because what I'm seeing here, buddy, does not compute. It's not taking us in the direction, because most likely John was in a scene, and he was looking for that warrior Messiah, the Mashiach, who was going to come and throw out the Romans and so on and so forth. And so Jesus retorts to him. Now, when John was in prison, heard the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? And Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Okay, that last line is a little weird, isn't it? What does that mean? Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Okay, if, if you really translate it and look at it idiomatically, he, he said, he's basically saying, don't let my appearance and don't let my approach fool you. you know, don't let it stumble you. Don't let it divert you from seeing what is really here, is basically what he's saying there. This is the crux of Jesus' ministry. He is telling John, who is questioning the same guy who baptized him, the same guy who leapt in, in his mother's womb when Mary visited him before they were both born, is now questioning John. So if he has this one moment, this one line to try to convince John of who he is, you know, this is how he proves that he is the one, by looking at his healing miracles. Somehow connected to this idea of preaching the gospel to the poor, by the way. So... How can we understand? How can we understand first preaching to the poor in terms of this gospel? Well, if we take a look at it in its broadest sense, he's bringing hope to those who have none again. All right? That's kind of the idea. It's not just limited to physical wealth, but to the spiritual poverty. He's bringing the gospel. He's bringing the good news. He's bringing hope back to these people. But does Jesus' ministry come down to just these physical healings that he is talking about here? in order to provide that hope? Is that really the bottom line, the crux of what's going on? And obviously there's a big fight over the historical accuracy of these healing miracles. 
Historians, of course, can't corroborate them, so they tend to dismiss them anyway. They just chalk them up to to mere metaphor or figures of speech. And, and so it's, it's another one of those fights, again, looking at just this accuracy, this physical accuracy. Is that all we're going to be focused on as we look at this? And that's really the wrong question to ask when we're asking questions of a spiritual book that is trying to convey spiritual truths to us. It's not whether this is real or whether this is true, quote-unquote, but what does it teach us about truth? That is the most important thing. And how do we take this truth inside of us in such a way that it actually makes us free, which is what Jesus is most insistent on. The truth needs to make us free. So what are these stories teaching us then about truth? Possibly that Jesus is God? Okay, that, that these miracles and witnessing these miracles, believing in these miracles leads to faith? That's fair enough. That's good. But Jesus also said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So there's another layer to this. It's not just about witnessing physical miracles, because there's an unseen quality to faith as well that Jesus seems to hold in very high value. Is it because, or is it that it's teaching us that God acts supernaturally in human affairs? Absolutely. That's great. As long as it doesn't keep us focused out there someplace, looking for these spectacular and significant events. And it doesn't keep us focused forward in the future. We are in an incomplete state, and we're always looking forward to a complete state that God's intervention will take us. That would be unhealthy. But does God act supernaturally in our affairs? Of course. Does it teach us that we need to have more faith so that we can see these healings today? So often we talk about, where are the healings today? That Was that only for that time and not for this time? Or for a third world developing country and not for a first world country like ours? You know, Is it because we don't have enough faith is to see these healings? Maybe that's it. Unless it always focuses us on the lack, the scarcity, what we do not have, as opposed to what we do. And then, of course, keeping us focused forward. There's got to be a balance here somehow as we look at Scripture, as we look at what these healing miracles are trying to teach us. Why are they there? Why does Jesus point to them in such a central way? Now, I'm not debating the accuracy historically of Jesus' miracles. In fact, what I want to do is just assume that they're all literally true. Assume that they're literally true, that they happened exactly the way that the Scripture tells us. That's going to be my baseline. But I also want to challenge another assumption that we usually bring to everything, including our our Bible, is that it's an either-or proposition. Either they're true or they're not. See, that's the dualistic way that we look at things in the West. But in the East, it's not either-or, it's both-and. Yes, we're going to look at these miracles as absolutely, literally true. But is there another layer, another way another layer of meaning that we can look at as well that can also be teaching us at the same time. Because this was exactly the way that the ancients, and especially the Hebrews, wrote these very books, these very scriptures that we're reading. The rabbinical idea and interpretation of scripture had multiple layers of meaning, four specific layers that were all going deeper and deeper, all existing at the same time. 
So if we can look at these scriptures as both literal and physical, but also spiritual and symbolic, can we get a deeper message that can really start to take us where Jesus is pointing? And if we look at the healings in this way, what can they start to teach us then? So let's take a look at a few of these. The blind see and the deaf hear, Jesus talks about. Jesus is always saying to the people, he who has ears, let him hear. Remember him saying that? He who has ears, let him hear. What is he saying? You know, everybody's got ears. Well, most people do. Are you willing to hear something different, though? Are you open to hearing something that doesn't comport with what you think you already know? He who has ears, let him hear. It's hard to put ourselves in the place of a deaf person. I have a friend, and he's not very old. He's, uh, I think he's 50-ish, something like that. But he's, he's got really bad ears, hard of hearing. And he was telling me, because he just got these new handy-dandy earpieces that are really, really cool. They're Bluetooth, and it just looks like a little Bluetooth thing that you would talk on your phone, and you can actually talk on your phone at it. But it's got a mode that you can switch, and it becomes a hearing aid. And it's bone conduction. It's not uh, going actually in the ear. He actually he let me put them on, and it's the weirdest thing, because it's just sitting on your cheekbones, and you can hear the thing throughout your whole head. It's so cool. But he had found himself, because he was hard of hearing, he, got, he said, I got so tired of asking people, what? 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 You know, what am I, a light bulb? What? What? And, 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 and he found himself kind of pulling out of conversations and just sort of sitting on, on the periphery and not being joined in, not being a part of it because it just got too old to try and too difficult to try to stay in. He said he got this thing on and it literally brought tears to his eyes that he could now be a part of his family's life again. He could now be a part of just business and everything he did. He could hear again. That's what a lack of hearing does. That's what a lack of sight does. It cuts us off. It puts us on the periphery. It makes it so difficult for us to connect. And what Jesus, I think, is saying here is this entering into conversation, this ability to enter into conversation, to heal this way, to let the blind see and the deaf hear is building an awareness in us. It is the healing of awareness to get over that voice in our head enough that we could actually listen to the person that's right in front of us, to be aware of what's going on. How many people do you know that you feel are really aware and listening to what you have to say? You know, listening is a lost art, it seems, especially in our culture today. How many people do you know that really listen, that really hear that have the ears to hear somebody else other than their own voice. The healing beyond the physical is this building of awareness, this ability to actually be open to a new idea, to a new sight, something that doesn't comport with what we think we already know. A huge, huge beginning to this journey. Now the lame walk, right? There was a man that was an invalid for 38 years sitting at the pool at Bethsaida. And Jesus comes along and you know what he asks him? Do you wish to get well? I mean, what kind of question is that, right? It's like a no-brainer. Do you wish to get well? He's been laying there for 38 years. Do you wish to get well? You know what the man's answer is? It's not yes. Wouldn't you just say yes? You know, someone gives you a compliment. Is it so hard just to say thank you? Yeah, it is sometimes, isn't it? 
Do you wish to get well? Well, you know, I've been here, and, and when the waters get stirred up, there's no one to help me. To, and he has all these excuses for why he's still laying there for 38 years. Do you wish to get well? It's not a trick question. But for all of us, for most of us, and many of us, that victim place is so comforting, isn't it? To be the victim is to have no responsibility for your situation, for your condition. To have no responsibility for the things that you're not doing. To be able to just sit and still be invalid, invalid, still be infirm, but you don't have any of that responsibility. To make the lame walk, to heal the lame, is to move them into action. To lose that victim mentality that is so paralyzing, so damaging that disallows any forward motion and finally be free to move, to heal people into awareness, to heal people into action, which is faith. Faith, biblically, is action. The ability to act, even in the presence of your doubt, is faith. Awareness, action. The lepers are healed. In this first century society, if you had any sort of skin disease, you were considered unclean. And you had to tell people that you were unclean as you were approaching them from so many feet off. You had to yell out, unclean, unclean. And they would make a big, wide berth around you. You couldn't go within the city gates. You couldn't be a part of community. You couldn't buy and sell and trade and eat with your family. You had to stay outside until that thing cleared up. And you went to the temple, and they declared you clean. Now you can come back into community. So to be a leper was to be ostracized. To be a leper was to be out of community. To be a leper was to be on the outside of life, looking in. When Jesus meets a leper on the road, the leper tells him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus do? He reaches out and he touches the man before he does anything else. That made Jesus ritually unclean. We weren't supposed to do that. You're supposed to heal first, and then you come back into community. Jesus goes back in, into community first. And then he says, yes, I am willing. And he heals the man. To be healed of leprosy is to be brought back into community. To be allowed to come back in to the, the rhythms of life and everything that means anything to us as human beings. So many people that, that are desperate and, and are, are looking for counsel by and large, have lost their community. They become isolated. Jesus is healing that, bringing back into community by breaking the ritual and social and and legal boundaries that keep us separate and allowing them back in. He exercised demons, didn't he? He healed the possessed by exercising the demons. In so many of us, there's an interior war going on. Jesus said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. He's absolutely right. What's going on inside of us? How many warring attitudes and desires and agendas and ambitions are causing us to move this way and that? So often we talk about that divided person that is really nowhere at all. To bring that back into unity, to cast out that which is diverting, to let go of that which is adulterating, to come back to purity. And the word really is integrity, to come back to integrity, where you are one thing inside and out. 
your thoughts and your actions, your words and, and, and your attitudes are all the same thing, coming from the same place. Jesus was said to have taught with authority, and the people were amazed at him because they sensed, they saw, they understood this integrity that he had. Not like the scribes and the Pharisees, where they could smell the hypocrisy, but they had to obey anyway. Here's someone who taught with authority. They knew that he lived this thing. They knew that he was this thing that he was saying because they could see it in him. To exercise the demons is to come back into this oneness, this wholeness, this clarity, if you will, this purity. And then the multitudes are fed. And I want to read this one because this one's, in, this one's interesting. At Matthew 14, starting in verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them and he healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took those five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. There were about five thousand men who ate, besides women and children. Wow. And a few barbecues. I wish I could have done that. There's 5,000 here that get fed. There's another story about the 4,000 that get fed. And, and the situation is similar. And, and notice this. The disciples challenge Jesus. How in the world are we going to feed these people? This is all we've got. They're still living in a worldview of scarcity. They're still living in a worldview that starts with emptiness, that starts with lack. They're living in a zero-sum game where if you take something from here, you know, then it's only going to add over here and over here. And so it's always coming out to a zero-sum at the beginning, right? Cause and effect, supply and demand. This is the way that they're looking at life. Both of these stories emphasize the fact that at the end of the meal, after everybody was filled... There was way more leftovers than what they started with. What is this story pointing to? What is Jesus trying to teach them? He's trying to show them that the spiritual economy is nothing like the physical economy. But we start with scarcity and think that there's never going to be enough, that we're playing the zero-sum game. And yet here is a spiritual economy where this abundance, this multitude is flowing through and always flowing through. And there will always be enough. We all have that mentality. There is something of an experience, of a sudden striking realization sometimes, a clarity that, that comes on. Have you ever experienced that? We have a word for it. I'd like to say it's an apostrophe, but it's an epiphany. I remember the moment that I realized about the nature of Scripture. I was uh, actually, Marion and I were going through a really difficult time because we had come against this, this doctrinal uh, gosh, freight train with our church. 
And I went into study mode, and I was studying, studying, studying. I remember I got this one book that took this topic by four different scholars within the the cover of one book, giving four different opinions, reading the same scriptural passages and coming to forward. And all of a sudden, that light went on. That apostrophe hit, that moment of clarity. And it's just like, you know, you kind of slap your forehead. Oh, I could have had a V8. It's like that. Oh, scriptural interpretation is an opinion. Oh, oh, wow. It's kind of like that story about the monk who's reading and he says, oh no, the word was celebrate. <laughs> it's, a, it's an epiphany. You know? This is what Jesus is leading them to. He's showing them, if you can't have this break with everything that you think you know, everything that limits you, everything that holds you down, that you think you have to adhere to as you're moving forward in this life and realize the abundance that is flowing through at every single moment, always, that you never have to dam it up or worry about if there's any more, that there's going to be 12 baskets where you started with five loaves and two fish. How would that change everything? It would change everything. Awareness, action, community, integrity, leading to the epiphany that then, of course, leads to rebirth. And what are the dead being raised but rebirth? But you see how everything is leading inexorably. All these healings are leading us, if we look at them spiritually, not at the expense of looking at them physically, but in addition to. Because here and now, if we just keep these miracles as physical happenings, then they stay at arm's length. They stay in the past. But can we bring them forward? Can we bring them and make them absolutely relevant this moment and every moment of our lives? If we overly focus on Jesus' healing miracles as literal, then it keeps them in the past, keeps them at arm's length. If we overly focus on them in terms of trying to recreate them in the present, that we need to have these healing physical miracles now in order to be able to say that our faith is real or that God's presence is real, then that can continue to focus us on the future, on the temporal. And that's not where Jesus is trying to focus us either. Finally, look at Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, it's not either or. It's both and. The healings are both physical and spiritual in their significance, but we got to balance. And Jesus is putting his emphasis here, the greatest emphasis on heaven, on Shemaya, on the eternal on the things that endure, absolutely endure. You know, every once in a while we hear about someone winning their battle with cancer. Have you heard that one before? They've won their battle with cancer. And I, yeah, we all understand what that means. And there are some of you in here that have won your battle with cancer or with another life-threatening disease. And so we, we understand that. But I've always thought that it was kind of a strange phrase, they won their battle with cancer. Because when you think about it, any physical healing is really just a temporary reprieve, isn't it? 
I don't want to minimize anybody's healing, and the time that we get back is precious, but nobody gets off the planet alive. So it's a temporary reprieve. It really is going on. What is eternal? Jesus is saying, focus on heaven. Put your treasure in heaven that is not temporary, on things that endure. Because if you really think about it, from the moment that we are born, we're all slowly dying, aren't we? From the moment we're born, this life is always leading inexorably there. The question is, and the question that you need to ask yourself, and the question that I truly believe Jesus is trying to get right to the forefront of our brains, is are you living while you're dying? Are you living abundantly while you're dying? That's what he's here for, to bring us the abundant life, to bring us a life that is set free from anything that would limit us or cause us to fear. If we're not listening to others, if we're focused only on our own head, if we're refusing to accept new ideas and new truths, then we are still deaf and we are still blind. If we're procrastinating, if we're paralyzed by fear, then we're lame. If we're isolating from everyone, if we are finding ourselves always in the defensive crouch, defending ourselves against others, then we're still a leper. We still have the skin disease. And if we're deeply divided inside, if our thoughts and our actions don't match, then we're still possessed by the demon. And if we're obsessed with all the things that we don't have and always waiting for the time when these things are going to change, then we're still scarce-minded and we haven't hit our epiphany yet. We haven't hit that moment that will launch us into our rebirth if all that is still going on in us, then yes, we are dead. Yes, we are entombed. Yes, we are imprisoned. Yes, we are poor. And we need to hear the gospel preached. The captive needs to be set free. The dead needs to be awakened. How? Through the awareness, action, community, integrity, and the epiphany of these healings that Jesus is talking about. Every moment of our lives, Jesus is there asking, do you wish to be well? We need new ears to hear that question. Hear what he's really asking. Hear the promise of healing that he is giving us. We're all dying slowly every day. But Jesus' greatest miracle is for him and for every single one of us to really live at the same time. Let's pray. Father, we want to live. Father, we want to be a people that when we're asked if we want to be well, it's a resounding yes. That we will do whatever it takes to find that wellness in you. Where do we need to be? How do we need to be? What is the position that we can take that puts us in the right place at the right time to connect with you, to have that moment where it makes a sense that it didn't make before, that we understand what it is we're doing here in a way we didn't before. 
Father, thank you for the healings. Thank you for the healings that are possible in our lives. The physical ones, the ones that cure us of something that is limiting us and keeping us out of connection with each other, but also these deeper ones that go to the core of who we are. Help us to see and know and balance this life in you. And again, help us to leave no stone unturned as we move forward. We're grateful, Lord. I'm grateful to be here today and to be able to talk about these things and to hug on each other. Thank you for this gift today. Never let us forget, we can only do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand, everyone.